now and ever we confess Jesus is our only hope in life and death. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us and we'll get started. Father, we do confess that in life and death that Christ is all and Christ is enough. Without Christ, O Lord, we would have no part with you right here, right now. But we thank you for your amazing grace upon us. Thank you for giving us your one and only Son. So help us now. Fill us with your Spirit. Help your servant to be faithful to your word. And may we all say as we leave this place, it was good to be in the house of the Lord. In Christ we pray. Amen. God speaks to us through his word. The Holy Scriptures. The Word of God. The Bible. And we speak to God through prayer. Through prayer. We believe that the Word of God is the Bible and that the Bible is enough and sufficient. We're not looking and waiting and expecting to hear an audible voice. The Word of God is enough. One definition of prayer says this, prayer is personal communication with God. Personal communication with God. In the early 1800s, the principal of Princeton Theological Seminary, by the way, in the 1800s, those Ivy League schools were bastions of gospel light. They preached Christ crucified. You fast forward to where we're at now, they're now dens of devils. But the principal of Princeton Theological Seminary, Charles Hodge, he defined prayer as such. Prayer is the converse of the soul with God. Prayer is the converse of the soul with God. In other words, he believed that prayer is how we talk to God, and when we talk to God, we are bearing our souls to him. We are having honest discourse with him. We're in Luke chapter 5, verse 16. It's entitled, The Praying Savior. The Praying Savior. And the main point that I want to get across this morning is this. Prayer is critical and essential in Christian life and ministry. Prayer is critical and essential in Christian life and ministry. Verse 16 is a very short verse. And if we've read the gospel many times, we could glance over this verse and miss something great. We could miss a diamond in the rough, so to speak. The Lord Jesus Christ provides for us today a great example of how to model prayer, of how to pray. And I would encourage all of us, all of us who are Bible-believing, born-again Christians, that what we read today, that we take it seriously, that we model our prayer lives with the Word of God and what the Word of God says. It would be a great benefit to you in honoring to the Lord. And I understand there's some of us in this room right here, right now, that are non-Christians. Your heart has never been changed by God. Your heart is cold as ice, hard as a rock, loves sin, 
Why? Because God has never changed your heart. But when God changes your heart and you have a new heart, you have new desires. You have new desires. And that's my prayer for you today. Welcome, by the way. You're welcome to hear. But I want you to understand this. Unless God changes your heart, and unless you trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, what we're talking today about regarding prayer makes no sense to you. Makes no sense at all to you. You need to be a Christian. So God's call upon your life right here, right now, is that you would turn away from your sins. That you would trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. That you would say, Jesus is all I have and Jesus is all I got. That's what you need. You need Jesus. The background to our text today in Luke chapter 5, in verses 12 through 15, we see an account of a leper. A man, as the scriptures say, full of leprosy. This man is through and through 100% certified leper. So much so that he's outside of the camp. He's not allowed, per se, to go into the temple courts and to worship Yahweh as God and king. Why? Because he's tainted. Why? Because he's defiled. He's ritually unclean. He's not allowed to be with God's people. And he hears about Jesus, that Jesus heals lepers, that Jesus can heal. And he finds a way and he figures out a way to get to Jesus. And once he gets to Jesus, he says, Lord, if you will, if you will, you can make me clean. And one of the things that I want to remind us that this request is sincere and genuine. That this request is reverent. That this re uh, request is respectful and humble. And then in verse 13, Jesus responds by saying, I will be clean. In other words, Jesus does something here in this text that no one should ever do. He is not supposed to stretch out his hand and touch this leper. Because to do so means now Jesus is defiled and tainted, but Jesus can do that because he's the Son of God, the Savior, and Jesus is God. So he can touch this man and not be tainted with sin. And not be defiled. And the scripture says that this man was healed instantly. Not 24 hours. Not 48 hours. Not 72 hours. He was instantly healed of his leprosy. And when we think about this story, this really is a story of God's grace upon this leper in the person of Jesus Christ. Grace came to the leper. And in verse 15, it says this. That as the people heard about Jesus, the story about Jesus spread across the land, across the region. People heard about Jesus. They wanted to come to Jesus to hear about basically his teaching. They wanted to be healed by Jesus. They were there to hear him and to be healed by him. This is possibly thousands upon thousands of people that came to Jesus. They looked at Jesus as a teacher. They looked at Jesus as a physician. 
But they did not look at Jesus as the Savior that has been promised from days of old. They were changed in body. They were healed physically. But they weren't changed in heart regarding salvation. Many wanted the blessing of being healed, but they didn't want the healer. Many wanted the blessing, but they didn't want the one who blesses. They wanted the benefit. That's all they wanted. And in spite of all of that, the Lord gives a wonderful example of prayer. His prayer life, which applies to us today. And this is very important. I hope we don't think that the Word of God is separate from prayer. If that's, a, if that's you, if you're a Christian who thinks that I can read the Word of God and not really think about prayer, and I'll put that on a lower shelf because that's not as important, it's not a priority, I want to challenge you today with the Word of God to think biblically. The Word of God and prayer go together. Luke 5, verse 16, our verse today, our text for the day, but he, referring to Jesus, would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Think about this. After serving people for many, many hours, maybe hundreds of people, maybe thousands of people, Jesus leaves. He goes to a desolate place. That's the idea here. Maybe the desert, maybe some sort of wilderness. And he goes there to pray. He goes a considerable distance. Not to sing songs. Not to be around people who would say, good job, Jesus. He goes off into the distance, into a quiet place in the wilderness to pray. To pray. The word prayer in the original language means to speak to God or ask God for something. The idea is communication with God, communing with God, speaking to God. And we understand this. For those of us who've been Christian for a period of time, we understand prayer. When we go to the Lord and we say, Lord, I'm needy. I need your help. Or, Lord, my brother and sister is needy. They need your help. We're talking about prayers of intercession or petition. We understand prayer when we confess our sins. We understand prayer when we adore God for His sovereignty, for His omniscience, for His grace. We understand prayer when we give thanks to Him for providing for our needs. We need food, O oh Lord. We need clothing and shelter, O oh Lord. And the Lord hears us and provides for us, and we give thanks. Prayer of thanksgiving. But as Christians, we need to understand this. Prayer reveals our dependency upon God. Prayer reveals our dependency upon God. Do you pray? Of course, it's Sunday, it's the Lord's Day. We all admit that we pray. But do we pray? Do we pray? It's hard to see this in the in our English Bibles, but in the original language, Jesus goes off to a desert or wilderness area 
a quiet area by himself to pray. And here's the part we don't pick up in our English Bibles. He does it for his benefit. There's a benefit to praying. There's a benefit to praying by yourself. There's a benefit to seeking the Lord in a quiet place. There's a benefit to that. And by extension, as New Testament believers, by extension, it's beneficial for us to pray. We need to be people of the book and we need to be people who pray. I understand that we're busy. We all live busy lives. Our to-do list, it seems like we've got 50 things to do in one day. We get half of it done. And then the next day we have another 50 items. And now we have 75 items to do on day two. We're all busy. We all have obligations. The standard excuse that I normally hear is this. Pastor Rolo, I don't have time to pray. I'm too busy. I'm raising kids. I'm working 8 to 10 to 12 hours. I'm working two jobs. I got this to do. I got that to do. Let me, let me translate what that means. What, when a, when a, a genuine, sincere Christian says that, this is what they're saying. This is what they're actually saying. They're saying, prayer is important, but it's really not that important. I love God, and God loves me. But I don't need to really depend upon God. I got this, Lord. And when I'm in trouble, I'll go to you. That's what we're actually saying when we have that mindset. Let me ask you a a question here. If I say to you, church family, I love Kara, my wife, with all of my heart. I will live for her and I will die for her. I love my wife. And then you find out tomorrow that I don't speak to my wife on Mondays. And I don't speak to my wife on Tuesdays. And I don't speak to my wife on Wednesdays, Thursdays, Fridays, Saturdays, or Sundays. But I tell you, I love my wife. How many wives would put up with that? Raise your hand. I don't see any hands. But yet we put up with that at the most critical juncture of our Christian life. Our prayer life. Oh, Pastor Rolo, you're preaching legalism, am I? This is basic Christianity 101. We don't prioritize prayer in our Christian walk. And here's why. Our bodies are healthy. We got a little bit of money in the bank. We're pretty much problem-free. Our boss likes us. As a matter of fact, everybody likes me, Pastor Rolo. I got no enemies in this world. My career is great. My job is great. I'm getting promoted through the ranks quickly. Everything is wonderful. What happens when God sends a problem your way? What happens then? If we belong to Jesus, please hear this. And that's our mindset and that's our practice. We must repent. We must repent. 
Apart from the Lord, what could we do? We need to repent of our apathy in prayer. Prayer is essential and critical in the Christian life and ministry. It's a non-negotiable. We cannot compromise this spiritual discipline, God's people. It's like the air we breathe. Try holding your breath right now. How long can you last? I timed myself for a minute and a half, and I almost died. We need air to breathe and live. We need God in prayer. The problem is we don't want to submit. We don't see our lack. We don't see our need. We don't put him where he needs to be in our lives. We're too self-sufficient. We're too independent. We're too American. That's what we are. Let me give us another example from the Bible regarding prayer. Mark 1.35. This is Jesus preaching in Galilee, by the way. Mark 1.35, and it says this, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Jesus just healed Simon Peter's mother-in-law of a serious fever, where she could have possibly died. And yes, Jesus heals. And many people think, because they read the gospel, they say, well, that was Jesus' primary ministry is to heal people. No, it's not Jesus' primary ministry. Yes, he did that out of grace and compassion and mercy and kindness. It was to prove to the people that what God had provided in the Old Testament is now here. The Savior is here. He is here to liberate those who are oppressed. He is here to give sight to the blind. He is here to give hearing to those who are deaf. He is here to provide salvation through the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus is doing. But Jesus' primary ministry in Mark 1 is verse 38. Mark 1, 38. That's his primary ministry. Jesus says in that verse that I have come to preach. Preach what? To preach the good news of Jesus Christ to those who are oppressed. And everybody's oppressed. Why? Because of sin. And Jesus is the antidote or the cure to an oppression to sin, a sinful lifestyle. It's through the atoning work of the blood of Jesus Christ that those who believe in Jesus are free. If the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. It's through Jesus. And right after that healing, Jesus goes to preach. He heals a demon-possessed person. But before he does any Christian work, before he does any Christian ministry, Jesus was praying, according to this text, very early in the morning while it was still dark. So we're possibly talking about 3, 4, 5 in the morning. He went off again to a desolate place by himself, quiet in the wilderness to pray. And he prayed. So then when we think about this verse, a question comes to mind. Is this verse commanding us to pray just like Jesus in Mark 1.35? The answer is no, it's not a command. 
A command is prescription. Thou shalt do this. Positive. Here's negative. Thou shalt not do this. But in this verse, this is description, not prescription. Description is basically describing an event and recording it. This is what Jesus did. This is not a command. So to rise early in the morning means what? What can we learn from this text? That Jesus sacrificed sleep, personal sleep, personal time to be with God the Father. Prayer reveals our dependency upon God. Prayer is critical to your life. Prayer is critical to my life. We can't compromise that. We can't give that up. We cannot surrender that spiritual discipline. Do we understand that? Is your prayer life the same as Jesus in this sense? Is your prayer life sacrificial? Let me ask you like this. Would you give up sleep to spend time with God the Father because you understand what he's done for you in the person and work of Jesus Christ? See, if the answer is no, and so don't get me wrong, some of you are thinking, Pastor Roller, are you preaching legalism? No, I'm not preaching legalism. What I'm saying is this. What are you willing to sacrifice to spend time with God? That's what I'm saying. Is your prayer life sacrificial? The text doesn't say you must pray in the mornings or in the afternoons or in the evenings or you must pray only on Sundays. Again, it's a description. But what we can learn from this, from our Savior, is this. Sacrifice. Sacrificial prayer. And if you agree with this, then we must figure out a way to reorganize our schedules, our busy lives, in such a way that we spend time with God. You know how many Christian parents I run into, they say, my kids are in soccer, they're in golf, they're in wrestling, they're in MMA, they're in this. We're going camping, Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, this, this, and this. Oh, by the way, they are in school full time also. And so what parents unknowingly or maybe knowingly, they pack out their whole week with activity after activity after activity. And the most important thing that they need to schedule is not in the schedule. God's people, please listen. Less is more. Narrow down your schedules and put God first in your life. You'll know that by the way you schedule out your activities during the week. I hope we understand. We have a great and wonderful privilege to commune with God. The Mormon can't do what we're doing. The Jehovah's Witness can't do what we're doing. We are communicating and communing with our God and our Creator and our Savior and our King. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus says, if you want to get to the Father, you got to go through me. That includes prayer. The biblical position 
And the reform position as it relates to prayer is we pray to God the Father through the Son, Jesus Christ, by the power and aid of the Holy Spirit. That's biblical prayer. I hope we understand we have a great privilege to commune with God in prayer. I came to Las Vegas in the 1990s, and I met a man by the name of Pastor Mark Patton. He was my pastor from 1994 to 2000. We were part of a small startup church. It was maybe 20 people at that time. And then on Easter and Christmas, we went from 20 people to 40 people. We thought we were a mega church at that time. And then he transitioned from being a pastor of a church to a missionary, and he started doing mission work in Africa. And he was trying to recruit me one time, and I kept saying, no, brother, the Lord's not giving me a desire to go there. The Lord's giving me a desire to go there. Well, he ended up doing a lot of work in Africa. He contracted COVID. He was hospitalized, away from his wife, away from his kids and grandkids, and he died all by himself. So I attended his funeral here locally. And as Christians, we don't use the word funeral for Christians, right? We say celebration of life, which is true. And all these testimonies about Mark, paying tribute to Mark, were, were captivating. But one testimony caught my ear. This one lady who had done work with Mark in Africa said, you know, one of the things that I appreciate about Pastor Mark is that every morning, every morning, he would wake up early when it was still dark. And he would get ready. And I would hear him get ready. And he would leave our little hut, our little building. And he would walk up the mountain in the dark. And he would pray to God for a long time. And then he would come down off that mountain. And then he would get ready for his day. And then he would attack the world with fire, with passion. He would preach the gospel and he would share the truth of God's word with others. When I heard that, I, I was amazed and I was convicted. We do that, don't we? Or we should do that. But do we do that in a disciplined fashion? Do we do that regularly, constantly, consistently? I'm afraid that we live in a culture now, in 2023, in a place called America, where prayer is less and less and less. That tells us the spiritual temperature of our society and culture and nation. You want to know what a nation thinks? Look at their prayer lives. You want to know what a church thinks? Look at their prayer lives. We look at prayer as an item on our to-do list. And once we check it off, I don't need Jesus for another 24 hours. I'm afraid that we want a comfortable prayer life, a safe prayer life, a secure prayer life, an easy prayer life. That's what I'm afraid of. And if that's you, if you claim to be a Christian and that's you, you need to 
fall on your face and ask God to help you break you from that unfruitful practice and mindset that is not honoring to the Lord. Again, I want to remind us, we've got a great privilege, God's people, to seek the Lord in prayer. We should take advantage of it. Do you understand, do we understand that we were outside of the camp, so to speak? We were the people in a foreign and distant land, and God brought us to the, he brought us to himself through the blood of his son. And we're not part of any family, we're part of God's family. He brought you near to him through the blood of his son. You're not part of any family, you're part of God's family by faith in the Savior. He saved you. Can we not spend time with our Savior? Many of us don't realize the spiritual deficit we're at when we don't pray. Many of us don't realize the spiritual war and battle that we're in. We're like the proverbial ostrich who sticks his head in the sand and is naive about the things of the world and what's happening in the world. We don't pay attention to what's happening. We are in a serious battle, God's people, for truth. We think everybody is fine, but the reality is people are going to die. And the Bible says once appointed to die, then the judgment. And we think that we're healthy and we're wealthy and we're fine and we're not. We're broke and spiritually destitute and bankrupt. That's what we don't realize. We need God's help. And so the church needs to be a bastion of truth. The pillar and buttress of truth as 1 Timothy states. We need to proclaim the truth of God's word to others. We need church planters. We need missionaries. We need more evangelists. We need people to quit sitting on the sidelines and get into the game, so to speak, and get active and be involved. I've said this once, I say it a thousand times. When Pastor John was the senior pastor, two years before he retired, he asked me, he said, Pastor Rolla, what does this church need? I said, Pastor John, there's three things we need. We need a pastoral internship where we can invest in the next generation of young men. Done. We need to send out church planters. Done. We need a biblical counseling ministry. Done. That doesn't mean it's finished. We need more. God has given you air in your lungs to live for him. God has given you a mouth to talk to him. Let me start with me. I understand I'm not the perfect pastor, but by God's grace, I'm committed. And I'm so grateful for Pastor Corey and Pastor Ed and Pastor Vladimir. And if the Lord, brothers, wants to bring more biblically qualified pastoral, uh, pastoral men, I'm happy with that, or deacons. But the fact of the matter is this. We must be men of prayer. Yes, we pray. And I'm grateful to God for those opportunities when we pray. But we can pray more. 
We cannot ask you to pray if we're not praying. But when we pray, it influences you. We must hold to the word of God and pray. Jesus prayed by himself to speak to God. So you may think, well, that's just good for the pastoral team. No, that's good for you. There's a benefit to you when you pray. Find a time to pray, God's people. Talk to the Lord your God in a quiet, uninterrupted, sacrificial way. Next, the next example of Jesus praying is in Luke 22. Luke 22. Jesus customarily goes to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him there. On this occasion, Jesus commands his disciples to pray. Why does he command his disciples to pray? The answer is in verse 40, that they may not enter into temptation. What is that temptation that Jesus doesn't want them to enter? It's an illusion of being sifted. The temptation is Satan's challenge to the disciples of Jesus to defect from Jesus, to abandon Jesus, to turn their back on Jesus. For example, Judas turned his back upon Jesus for 30 stinking pieces of silver. The apostle Peter turned his back on Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. And the Lord providentially used the rooster to convict him of that. We must understand what Jesus is saying here. The emphasis really is in verse 31 when Jesus says, Simon, he doesn't say it once, he says it twice, Simon. Behold, Satan has demanded to you or to have you that he might sift you like wheat, separate you from Christ. Now, if we, we read this wrong when we think that Jesus, or I'm sorry, when we think that the devil has all the power. No, he's not. He's a real being, but he doesn't have all the power. So when we think of Luke chapter 22, verse 42, and what Jesus is doing here, Jesus is praying fervently and in humility. Luke twenty-two forty-two says this, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. You remember, Jesus is now hours away from being arrested, going through a kangaroo court in an illegal proceeding during that time frame, being judged, nailed to a cross, and crucified. And Jesus is praying here in Luke 22. He's praying so hard and so fervently. His soul is in anguish. And when most people are in anguish, they run away. But with Jesus, he's in anguish and agony, and he prays even more. And Jesus says here in this prayer to his Father, if you are willing. Again, this is reverent prayer. This is humble prayer. This is sincere prayer. Jesus is not commanding. Jesus is not demanding. Jesus is not prideful. Jesus is humble and reverent in his prayer. He says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup. 
What's the cup? What's the cup? The cup is a symbol of God's divine wrath and judgment upon Jesus for the sins of his people. By the way, Jesus has no sin. He has no sin. He has no personal sin. He is the perfect one. He is the holy one of Israel. And what does Jesus do? He leaves the glories of heaven. And in the incarnation, he's born of Mary by the power and aid of the Holy Spirit. And now Jesus is at the point of crucifixion. And he drinks down every drop of the cup of wrath on behalf of God's people. He dies in the place of those who repent and trust in him. The Holy One dies. He knows he's about to be crucified. So Jesus says, if you're willing, take away this cup of suffering and wrath. Jesus takes on the full, merciless wrath of God on behalf of God's people. And if you are a Christian today, that's what Jesus did for you. But listen to this. Jesus goes on to say, not my will, not my will, but yours be done. Even though Jesus made a humble request to God the Father to remove this cup of wrath, Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus is fully submitted to the will of God. He is fully submitted to the will of God. God's ways are always good. God's purposes are always good. God's will is always good. And Jesus submits to God's will. In Isaiah 55, verse 8, it says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts. This is the Lord speaking. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts than your thoughts. In Isaiah 55, we see the compassion of the Lord. The compassion of the Lord, the kindness of the Lord, that the Lord is the Holy One of Israel. And he encourages the people to seek the Lord while he may be found, while he is near. Seek the Lord. And then he encourages the wicked to forsake their ways and to return to the Lord. And when they do that, the Lord will have compassion upon them. The Lord will abundantly forgive abundant it's not just forgive it's abundantly forgive when god forgives he forgives and then in this text we see next a comparison between god and man god's thoughts and man's thoughts god's will and man's will god's ways and man's ways god is sovereign god is all-knowing He's omniscient. We need to understand as God's people, when we pray, we go to the Lord in humbleness, in reverence, in genuineness and sincerity. Pour out your heart before the Lord. But we need to pray like Jesus in this case. 
not my will, but yours be done. We need to approach God in humility, not in arrogance and pride. We should not be claiming God's people. We should not be claiming things in the name of God or in the name of Jesus that we have no business doing. Normally, when I say that, people say, well, Pastor Rolo, how about John chapter 14? Doesn't the Bible say, Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, John 14 verse 13, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. What does that mean? This does not mean that we can ask for anything and everything, and then at the end of our prayer, add a tagline in the name of Jesus, and Jesus will do it. This is not some sort of magical incantation. This is not a magical prayer. This is not some sort of magical formula. In the ancient world, in general, to pray in someone's name or to use someone's name simply meant that it's not on my authority, but it's on this person's authority that I'm claiming. It's the other person's authority. That's what it means to claim someone's name. But not only is it another person's authority, but it's also another person's character. Because in the Bible, usually what happens, a person's name reflects their character. We understand this when so-and-so says, this brother has a good name. What are we actually saying? We're not saying that the Williams name is perfect. What we're saying is that he is a man of reputation. He has character. He has integrity. That's what we mean when we say he has a good name. It represents his character. But let me be more specific. When the Bible says to pray in Jesus' name, we are praying on the authority of Jesus. We are representing his reputation. And what does that mean? It means that we must know the will of God or the will of Christ and recognize this and submit to his will. We need to come to grips. Is God's will perfect? Yes. Is God's wisdom perfect? Yes. Is God infinite? Yes. Are you finite? Yes, that means you are a human being. That you get many things wrong in this life. But to pray in the name of Christ specifically means that Jesus' name is to submit to God's will. That's what we're saying. As Jesus submits to God's will, we're submitting to God's will. We know that God's wisdom is great and perfect. 1 John 5, verse 14. 1 John 5, verse 14 says this. And this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Did you hear that? Did you see that? 
It says, if we ask anything according to God's will, he hears us. The question is, when we pray, do we know perfectly all the time God's will? If we're to be honest, the answer is no. We don't know God's will perfectly unless you read God's word and know it perfectly. And so God's word is a great blessing as we pray. That goes back to my original point. We cannot separate prayer from God's word. So we can't separate God's word. We can't divide God's word and pick and choose like a Las Vegas buffet what we like about God's word. Where does it say sola scriptura? Sola scriptura. Scripture alone. As God's people, when we say sola scriptura, we're saying that God's word is enough. And God's word is all we need. We don't need anything else. That's what we mean by sola scriptura. But one thing that we don't hear very often is tota scriptura. Tota scriptura is the totality of scripture. And so when we take God's word in John chapter 14, that you can ask me anything in my name and I'll give it to you, we need to take that verse and we need to put it together with John, 1 John 5 verse 14 and put it together. And when we put it together, tota scriptura, the totality of God's word, this is what we end up with. That Christians are to pray in Jesus' name, his authority, and he will do it. He will do it. Catchphrase, according to his will. According to his will. According to God's will. Jesus will answer our prayer when we ask according to his will. We need to be reminded that God is always good. God is always right. And when there's a problem in the Bible, it's not that God has a problem. We have the problem. It's because we don't understand it. And when we pray and God does not answer our prayer, or does not answer our prayer according to what we want, God is still good. God is still great. God is still all wise. We need to be praying like Jesus, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. So I've addressed prayer from a personal standpoint. It should be quiet, uninterrupted, sacrificial, and according to God's will. Well, how about the church? How about the local church? I'm glad you asked. How does prayer apply to us corporately as a body of believers? I want to bring your attention to Luke 19, verse 46. And Jesus saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer but you have made it a den of robbers. What is Jesus doing there? Jesus is quoting Isaiah 55 or 56 verse 7. And the word house refers to the temple. Jesus is at the temple. And the problem during that time frame is that you would have merchants that were outside of the temple courtyards and you would have a money changer and you would have a seller of sacrificial animals. So when people came to the temple to offer their tithes and offer their sacrifices, 
they could take the coins, which is the currency of the day, the coins of Tyre, T-Y-R-E, and take it to the money changer, convert it, buy this animal, and you would buy an animal without blemish, without spot, without defect. Everything was convenient. Why? Because it was outside the doors, outside the courtyard of the temple. But now Jesus is on the scene, and he's angry and he's frustrated with these merchants of the temple. Why? Because now, instead of being outside of the courtyard, they're actually in the temple area. And Jesus is angry with them. Why? Because now that temple or these merchants are in the temple the focus is no longer the worship of god the focus is the worship of money and he calls these people a den of robbers the temple in the old testament was a place where god's people can come and worship the great king It was not supposed to be a place of business. That's why Jesus says, my house shall be a house of what? Prayer. It's a place to commune with God, to speak to God, and to worship God. In the Old Testament, the physical temple was brick and mortar. Well, that was destroyed in AD 70. It's not rebuilt. If you go to the Holy Land right now, it's destroyed. But in the New Testament, New Testament, the temple is no longer brick and mortar. But it's the people of God congregating together for worship. I don't have time to go into this. I'm running out of time. But write this down. Matthew 26, verse 61. Matthew 26, verse 61. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 16. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 16. And Revelation 11, verse 1. Revelation 11, verse 1. But now as New Testament Christians, we are not waiting for the Old Testament temple to be rebuilt in the Holy Land. We are the temple. Why? Because the Spirit of God has filled us. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. God's people come together to worship God. Hebrews 10.24 says this, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. One way to apply this text faithfully regarding us as a church body, a local church, is to come together not neglecting the assembly of the saints. The problem of that time is the same problem of this time that there are well-meaning Christians that have picked up really bad habits, spiritual bad habits. They are looking for every excuse not to be in church and not to be with God's people and not to be encouraged and edified by God's people and God's word and God's preaching. As Bible-believing Christians, we should make excuses to be with God's people. We should find excuses to pray together. And to hear the word of God together. And to sing, there is no other life but Christ alone. Pastor Rolo, don't you understand I'm busy? I'm busy, Pastor Rolo. I'm busy too. You know, it's funny. Those who 
want to go to Hawaii, they usually have this big dream. They have no money and they have no time or both. But yet, when somebody invites them to Hawaii, they find time. They will work two or three jobs and wash dishes at some restaurant to just muster enough money, and they will catch the first plane to Hawaii. They'll catch the first plane to Alaska. They'll catch the first plane to Mexico. They'll catch the first plane to anywhere and everywhere. But yet they do not prioritize the importance of prayer. So it's not a matter of I'm too busy. It's a matter of you have no desire. You have the capability. You have the ability, but we don't have the desire. How do I know that? I watch your Facebook Facebook posts. I just don't say anything. I watch. I just never respond. So when you say, I'm sick. Yeah, you're sick. Sick in the wrong way. You know, our Sunday afternoon prayer service at 1.30 really is just any other service in one sense because most churches have a Sunday morning service and a Sunday night service, usually at 11 and usually at 6. At this church, all we're doing is moving the 6 o'clock service Sunday night, which we used to have, if you remember. We moved it up to 1.30. We still preach the Word of God and we pray. It's still an official service of this church. But I just want to encourage you that we are to pray individually and we are to pray corporately. And one of the best ways that we can encourage our brother and sister in Christ is to not only pray individually in your private places, but you come together as God's people. You've got a great privilege. The question is, what are you willing to sacrifice What are you willing to sacrifice? The Lord will help you. But the reality is you don't want the Lord's help. In the late 1800s, an American author by the name of E.M. Bounds, he was a Methodist, but he was a scholar and an American author, and he wrote many, many books. Most of his books, by the way, were on the topic of prayer. He wrote 11 books on prayer. If you ever get your hands on one, E.M. Bounds, B-O-U-N-D-S. Get your hands on one of those books. But he says this in regards to prayer, which I find intriguing. Quote, the life, power, and glory of the church is prayer. The life of its members is dependent on the prayer and the presence of God is secured and retained by prayer. He goes on to say, without prayer, a church is like a body without spirit. It is dead, inanimate thing. A church with prayer in it has God in it. When prayer is set aside, God has been outlawed. When prayer becomes unfamiliar exercise, then God himself is a stranger there. God forbid that's us. God forbid that that is us. I want you to know, church family, we are praying. We will continue to pray, and we will pray until God calls us home. But are you with us? What can you sacrifice to be with God's people? And quit making excuses. As I close here, 
here is a prayer that I don't necessarily agree with, but at the same time, I agree with. This is a person praying, and he says this, quote, Dear God, so far today I've done all right. I haven't gossiped. I haven't lost my temper. I haven't been greedy, grumpy, nasty, selfish, or overindulgent. I'm very thankful for that. But in a few minutes, oh Lord, I'm going to get out of bed, and from then on, I'm probably going to need a lot of help. Amen. <laughs> half of that is true, and the other half I disagree with. You know what, Pastor Ed? We need to sing the song, I Need Thee Every Hour. I need thee every hour, O gracious Lord. But the real, oh, you want to keep on singing? Praise the Lord. <laughs> but you know what? In reality, this is what we do. In our hearts, we say that. But functionally, practically saying, we, we do this. I need thee every month. I need thee every six months. I need thee once a year, O Lord. That's what we're actually doing in our practice. We would never say that with our words. But in our function and in our practice, that's exactly what we're doing. So I want to give you a practical steps on to pray. You may be saying, Lord, help me pray. And the Lord will help you pray. But how should you pray or what should you pray about? Out there on the foyer table or on the mission wall is our up-to-date prayer list take that prayer list there's different categories there's people who are desperately sick they need prayer there are people who need salvation there are people who need jobs there we we need to pray for more missionaries and church planters and evangelists to get the word out if you pick up that list you will never run out of things to pray about but also i want to give you another recommendation we pray at this church a certain way because we believe it's biblical. But we've never really talked about it, or maybe we have, but maybe just in passing. But we follow the uh, acrostic acts, A-C-T-S, A-C-T-S. A stands for adoration. It's a prayer of adoration or a prayer of praise. We do that in the opening. If you notice, when we open our service, it is a prayer of praise. C, confession. Confessing sin. Not just individual sin, but corporate sin. When the person or the pastor up here during the pastoral prayer prays, we are confessing our sin. T, thanksgiving. We give thanks to God in our prayers. But the one thing that we don't do a lot in the 11 o'clock hour is S, supplication. Praying for our brother and sister in need, or praying for our own personal needs. We do the S part at the 1.30 when we pray for each other. And so when we think about prayer, we need to model our prayer life as we see what Jesus does in his prayer life. He speaks to God. He doesn't demand. He doesn't command. He doesn't claim. And he does so in private, quiet places many times. He prays sacrificially. 
He prays humbly and submissively. We should admit that God is always good. And he's always right. And we need to pray according to his will, not our will. We need to quit holding on to God as if he is our cosmic butler. Lord, if you will just give me this and just give me that. We need to just submit to God's will. We've heard the old Baptist joke that if you take the word just out of a prayer, a prayer of a, of a Baptist, they could never pray. We need to just submit to God's will and pray according to his good, perfect will. And we need to pray individually and corporately. If you're not a Christian, you need to repent. God commands you and calls upon you to repent and trust in him. You're not here by accident, chance, or coincidence. You are here for a very specific reason, that you would hear the word of God, that you would be convicted by the word of God, by the aid of the Holy Spirit, that God would give you the gift of repentance, that you would think differently, see differently, act differently, that your emotions would be not secular, worldly, and evil, but that your emotions and everything that you think will be biblically and God-centered and Christ-centered, that you would turn away from your sins. That's biblical repentance. That you would trust in the Savior. You don't have ten options to choose from. You have only one option, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Savior that saves. He is the Redeemer that has redeemed. And He deserves all glory and honor and praise. There is no other king like our king. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Who else can do what Jesus Christ has done? No one. No one. And so if you're not a Christian, you need to beg God to change your heart. And if you are sincere and genuine, he will do it according to his good will and purposes. You need to repent and trust in Jesus. There's no other way. Sermon in a sentence. Our Jesus, the praying Savior, models for us how to pray. And when we pray to God, individually and corporately, we reveal our dependence upon what does your prayer life look like, God's people? Are you dependent upon God? Then it will show in your prayer life. Let's pray. Father, we've heard a hard word and a hard sermon. We've been convicted and challenged. And we thank you, O oh God, that you're the God of grace, that your mercies are fresh and new, not every other month, but each and every day. And Lord, we admit to you that we need your help. Lord, help us. Help us to be people of your word that are humble enough to pray and to be wholeheartedly dependent upon you. Oh God, you saved us for your glory. Father, help us to pray to you as we ought, to commune with you as we ought. In Christ we pray. Amen.